Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. Amen. Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as we are going to be bringing to a conclusion this week our uh, short series on church unity. Uh, Next week we'll be beginning uh, our series in Genesis. Uh, I'm looking forward to that very much. I hope you are as well, but uh, uh, we've got one more in church unity to go. I, I tried to maybe squeeze a couple more out of this, but... Uh, here in Kentucky, we like to race live horses, not beat dead ones. So uh, this will be the last, the last sermon here on church unity. But over the past several weeks, we've discussed a number of topics as it relates to the issue of church unity. At first, we asked, what is our unity based on? What is the foundation for this idea of church unity? Why, why should we even think of ourselves as unified in some way? In the first place, where does this bond that we share come from? We said that the fact that we are united to one another is rooted in the fact that we are each individually united to Christ. And as we are individually united to Christ, we all together are united as a church body. Our union with Christ by the gospel of grace allows us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. To emulate the unity that Jesus shares with the Father and that the Father shares with the Spirit and that they each share with one another in the Holy Trinity. And the Gospel allows us to strive for maturity then together. Our unity is forged in the blood of Jesus. It was purchased on the cross. And it is confirmed in His resurrection. We ask then, what is it that divides us? And we took a couple of weeks to look at different things that might divide us. What are the sources of disunity? And according to James, when he asked this question, what causes wars and conflicts and strife among you? He told us that it was our disordered desires, our our sinful desires, and also our tendency to downtalk each other, to gossip, to slander our brothers and sisters in Christ. These things cause disunity. We also saw in the book of Jude that grumbling, complaining, Lustful desires, even flattery, are all things that can cause division. Last week, we looked at the consequences of this divisive behavior. And the Bible warns us that if we continue in disunity, if we allow conflict to exist in our midst, then ultimately we will cannibalize ourselves, devouring one another. As we're warned about in Galatians, mutually assured destruction. It warns that we will grieve the Holy Spirit, handicapping the ministries of the church. That we will rob God of His glory that He is rightfully due when we do not walk in unity. Now, remember that none of these things, as I've said, none of these things are comprehensive. This isn't the final word. We cannot plumb the depths of our union with Christ that forges the basis for our union with one another in one sermon. Nor can we anticipate the list of all the different causes of conflict in the church. 
And especially not the consequences, since the consequences of our divisive behavior of our conflict may last generations and may spread far and wide. So then understand, as we've gone through, and this will be the fifth sermon now I've preached on the topic, this is just a primer. There may be some situations that arise that we can't even possibly begin to anticipate. But my hope is that when they do, having looked at what the Bible says about disunity and where it comes from and what its consequences are, and today, how we can prevent it or deal with it if it arises, my hope is that when those situations come, and they most definitely will, right? where two or more are gathered in my name, there is conflict in the midst of them. Right? There, are, there are going to be times when we just disagree with one another, when we don't see eye to eye. And my hope is that when those time come, times come, as we've looked at this from the Bible's perspective, that we might be able to apply these biblical principles and then move forward together in unity. There's nothing new under the sun. There's no situation that you might encounter that the Bible does not provide answers for or address. And since we are bound together by the blood of Christ, there is no division that may ever occur between us that cannot be remedied. So then today we want to answer this final question. How do we prevent conflict? So far we've, we've taken somewhat of a negative approach. We've looked at the Bible's warnings. What causes conflict? What are the consequences of conflict? But today I, I want to look a bit more on the bright side of things. How do we prevent it? Now that we know how devastating its consequences can be, now that we know what causes it, okay, now how can we prevent it? What safeguards can we put into place to make sure that we are walking together in unity? And how do we respond if it ever does arise in such a way as to maintain the unity of the church? Right? Because so often when conflict arises in the church, when people get upset, the mentality is, I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to another church where I don't know those people well enough to be angry at them yet. But after a few years and something new comes up there, well, then it's on to the next one. Maybe some of you are here today because you got angry at another church that you were at. And we understand those things happen. That's part of the reality of where we live. But we need to understand also that these things can be remedied if people are willing to take the Bible seriously and to put into practice what it says. And so what does that look like? I believe there are four helpful commands that we are given in Scripture that are essential in preventing conflict or safeguarding unity. We'll look at each four of these, each of these four today, and as we do so, I'd ask that you, if you're able, that you stand together this morning in honor of the reading of the Word of God as we consider the first of four different passages of Scripture this morning. First in 1 Corinthians 10. Beginning in verse 6, it says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, 
but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may not that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's once more turn to the Lord in prayer today. God, we are so thankful that you have given us a roadmap, that you have given us means to safeguard the precious unity that exists even now among this body. Lord, I thank you for the spirit of love that pervades our fellowship, for the desire to love and care for and honor and respect each other. But Lord, I know that may not always be the case. And so that means that right now is the perfect time while there is not conflict, while there is not hostility for us to make sure that these safeguards are in place. So in the heat of the moment, we won't be scrambling, trying to figure out how to respond. Lord, help us to heed your word today and to be willing to obey your commands. Lord, help us to be faithful. To encourage one another, to love one another, and to honor you in all that we say and do here today. And Lord, if there is one who remains separated from you by their sin, if there is one who has not been united to you by the blood of Jesus, who has not repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, then Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would recognize the hope that they have in Jesus. They would call out to him in faith and that you would assure them of the blessed adoption they have as a precious son, as a precious daughter in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As we look at this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first remedy that we see for conflict or the first way to prevent conflict is to flee from idolatry. To flee from idolatry. We see that there in verse 14. After everything that Paul says, after all the examples that he gives of how the people grumbled and complained and were destroyed, he says the the simple response, the way to avoid all these things, the way that we recognize that this was given for our benefit as an example to us and to not fall into the same trap is to flee idolatry. Now, we've seen that often lustful desires or sinful desires, disordered desires, are at the heart of our conflict. Those two dangerous words, I want, those often breed conflict within the church. We want something, even something that God has said might be a good thing. We can turn a good thing into an idol. And then we punish our brothers and sisters in Christ when They don't bow down to our idol when they don't give us the thing that we want. We've also considered, if you thought this passage sounded familiar, we've considered this very same passage once before, just a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about grumbling and complaining and how those things became sources of division. 
And the fact that these things are not minor sins, but these are major sins that God said are worthy, made his people worthy of destruction. But the remedy that Paul provides here, the cure for grumbling, complaining, which creates conflict, isn't to just stop complaining. Right? That's what we often think. If, if there's a problem, and if grumbling and complaining is the problem, then the solution is to stop complaining. Right? If being angry at one another is the problem, then the solution is to stop being angry. But that's not what Paul says. The solution here, he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Because he recognizes that at the heart of all these problems, there are idols. The complaints that fly thoughtlessly from our lips begin as idolatrous desires in our hearts. So long before we ever think about uttering a complaint, we have to realize that an idol exists in our hearts and we must flee from it. Because when we flee from idolatry, grumbling, complaining, flattering, division, they're cut off at the source. Those things don't happen when we recognize and address and flee the idols in our hearts. Let me show you how this works. Give you a real life example here. Say that on a Wednesday night after dinner, Sonny and Philip are down in the gym washing up dishes. And Sonny accidentally splashes some, some water from the sink onto Philip's brand new sneakers. I suppose Philip turns and chews Sonny out for his carelessness and his thoughtlessness at daring to splash water on his brand new shoes. Couldn't he see how new and shiny and spectacular they were? Right, Philip in that situation, has already turned his heart toward his shoes or his outward appearance. Those things have become paramount to him so that when Sonny threatened those things by splashing water on them, he lashes out. If those things do not become idols, but only shoes, only bits of material and cloth and rubber to keep our feet safe and warm and tools that we can use to get from one place to another, if they remain that, then they cease to be an idol and there is no conflict when things like that happen. Now, I know that's a silly example. None of you could ever imagine Philip or Sonny doing dishes, but <laughs> in all seriousness, the exact same thing plays out every single day, right? We take something small and we turn it into an idol. We get upset when someone cuts us off in traffic because we've placed our time and our punctuality or whatever it might be, even though we're never actually made late by someone cutting us off. But, but we've, we've, we've placed our preeminence as the idol of our heart. And we get upset when someone threatens that. And so if you want to cure conflict, if you want to prevent grumbling and complaining and flattering and gossip, you have to flee from idolatry. We have to realize that at the heart of all of those sins is ultimately an exaltation of ourself or of something else to God's position. And when something other than God inhabits the throne of our hearts, whether it's ourselves, whether it's our shoes, whether it's our car, whether it's our time, whatever it might be, whenever that is elevated to the throne of our hearts, we will protect it at all costs and we will get angry at other people when they threaten it. Young people, 
you're particularly susceptible to this. How many times do you complain because someone is riding your bicycle, they're playing with your ball, your toy, they're reading your book, they're in your room. Right? My, my, my. They aren't hurting that thing. But we're offended that they would dare to presume on our idol. Because we value the item more than we value the other person. And it's made evident in how we respond to them. That's idolatry. We will grumble, we will complain, we will flatter, all to serve our idol. We'll fight with our brothers and sisters to make sure that that idol is satisfied when instead the Bible tells us that we must flee from idolatry. We aren't to satisfy that idol, we aren't to serve that idol. We are to flee from it because it is dangerous to us. It is dangerous to the church because it causes conflict. The second way to prevent conflict, though, first, flee from idolatry. Second, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5. You can flip over a few pages to Galatians 5, verses 13 through 25. These verses, too, may sound familiar to you because we talk... We, Read them last week. He says here in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Nor the works of the now the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And then verse 26, I didn't include this in the notes, but it says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. But again, at the end of this long list, what is the takeaway? What's the practice that we need to to, to make sure is happening in our lives. Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us walk by the Spirit. He contrasts here in this passage the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And again, we we talked about verses 13 through 15 last week, how we bite and devour one another. And so all of this flows together. All of this comes together. The, the, The biting, the devouring one another... It happens because we are following after our flesh. We are pursuing our fleshly desires. But Paul says, in contrast to that, what we should do as believers is walk by the Spirit. And when you walk by the Spirit, you will not 
You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You will not bite and devour one another. You will not be divided from one another. Conflict causes us to grieve the Holy Spirit. But if we are consistently walking by the Spirit, we will not grieve the Holy Spirit. And we will maintain the unity of the church through the power of the Spirit. As he lists these works of the flesh versus works of the Spirit, consider what these are. He he lists following the flesh. He says, when you follow the flesh, this is what it looks like. There's adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Now the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When you consider these two different categories, the works of the flesh versus the works of the Spirit, what you realize is that each one of these is relational. All of these things, whether it's murder or hatred, contentions, drunkenness, all of these things versus love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those are relational So you can tell whether a person's walking by the flesh or whether they're walking by the Spirit based on how they relate to one another. All these things become evident in the way that we interact with one another. Walking by the Spirit promotes unity. Walking by the flesh leads to conflict because these things create in us selfishness. They cause us to bite and devour one another. So Paul says again, the cure for that, to walk by the Spirit, to practice the fruits of the Spirit. But this goes deeper than us just trying really, really hard to be loving and gentle. We may say, well, okay, so does this mean that that I just have to grit my teeth and, and muster up my strength and try really, really hard to be loving and gentle and patient? No. It happens as we understand who we are by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that we have actually crucified the flesh. So these fruits of the flesh, these these works of the flesh that we sometimes can slip into, he says, you've crucified that. That was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And so this is a question of not just trying really hard, but have we believed the gospel? Are you today believing the gospel that those sins are nailed to the cross and you bear them no more? Are you trusting today for Jesus to give you the strength and the courage to say no to hatred, contentions, jealousies, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, and the like? Are you living in the truth of the gospel? Because if you are in Christ, if you have found your forgiveness in Jesus Christ, then we have been set free from our flesh by His death. Our flesh and its desires is nailed to the cross with Christ. Our problem, though, is that we often tend to try to regain that flesh. We try to snatch that flesh back and live in that way. Philip Graham Ryken puts it like this. He says that we will attempt to resuscitate our flesh and live once more according to his lust. He says, this has to stop. Do not administer first aid to your flesh. Instead, treat it the way that Jesus was treated at Calvary. Mortify your sinful nature. Put it to death. 
From time to time, whenever it shows signs of life, say, oh, no, you don't. Don't try to climb down from there. Get back up on the cross where you belong. Then pound the nails in a little deeper. If you belong to Christ, you have crucified your sinful nature with all its selfish desire. Do not resuscitate it. Do not give it CPR. Do not keep it on life support. Just leave it on the cross and let it die. But this is our problem. Far too often we don't live in the freedom that we've been given by Christ. Paul begins this passage in verse 13 by telling us, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Jesus has freed you from the flesh. But we sometimes say, you know what, I'd like a little bit of this, a little bit of selfishness, a little bit of hatred, a little bit of drunkenness, a little bit of lewdness, whatever it might be. And it's like we try to resuscitate our flesh. We try to take it off the cross and wear it around just a little bit more and enjoy it because we think it's going to give us a good time. Philip Graham in the he's the president of Westminster Theological Seminary, he says, don't do that, kill it. Let it die. Jesus died to put your flesh to death. And one of these days, praise God, when He returns, we'll be given new and glorified bodies and those sinful desires, those desires of the flesh, they'll be forever put to death. And we won't have to worry about them anymore. But until that day comes, we have to daily commit to dying to self, dying to our flesh, letting our flesh die and walking to the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit. As we do that, we will see less and less disunity in the body of Christ and more and more unity, more and more love, more and more faithfulness to our mission. The third cure, the third preventative here for disunity, though, is perhaps the simplest to understand, but often the hardest to actually do. And that is simply overlook an offense. Overlook an offense. Proverbs 19 11 tells us that the discretion of a man or or good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory. It is your glory, brothers and sisters, to overlook an offense. To just overlook it. Two short lines reveal a profound truth about how the Bible expects us to interact with one another. We ought to be slow to anger. Now notice here, Proverbs 1911 says good sense makes one slow to anger. It doesn't tell us how slow, right? It also doesn't tell us how many times that we are to overlook an offense. Proverbs just leaves this open-ended. Do you have to wait for three offenses to occur before you can start to get angry? 300 before your anger is justified? James reiterates similarly in the New Testament. That we ought to be slow to anger. For he says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God doesn't tell us how many offenses we're supposed to overlook here in Proverbs. Or how slow we are supposed to be to anger. Because God knows that if he told us that we are supposed to overlook ten offenses. That we would be counting them on our fingers. Waiting to the moment where we could really let that person have it. Right, Whether it's 10 or 10,000, we'd be counting down that list and saying, all right, buddy, you are at the end of my rope. It's the language we often use anyway. God knows our hearts. He knows what we would do. But you see, this is not what He intends. That's not the spirit of this command that He gives. He wants us to be slow to anger. He wants us to overlook offenses, however many we possibly can. 
And so the question ought not be how long must we endure before we are allowed to get angry as if we are eager to get angry, but how far away from anger can we remain? It's like a teenager asking the question, how far is too far physically with my boyfriend or girlfriend? How far can I go before it becomes a sin? Right. If, if you're asking that question, you've already lost the battle. And in the same way, when you're asking, how far am I allowed to go before I can get angry? What you're saying is you've already resolved in your mind to get angry. You've already decided that you're going to get angry. You're just waiting for divine permission. Just like the teenagers are, have already decided in their heart that they want to be physically intimate with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They're just wanting permission to know how far they're able to go before they cross the line. You've already determined you want to go too far. And so we must resolve. We must resolve to remain as far away from anger as we can, to flee idolatry, as we've already said. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It does not produce unity within the church. On the flip side of this, the second half of this verse says to overlook an offense, for it is the glory of a man. It is your glory, brother and sister, to overlook an offense. If you want to be thought of as great, if you want to be glorified, if you want your honor to be magnified in the eyes of God and men, overlook offenses. It is a glorious thing for you to do that. To overlook them. You do not have to be avenged every time someone insults you or slights you or offends you. We see examples of this in the Bible. Saul, the king, was seeking to kill David. But David does not take out his own vengeance on Saul. Instead, what does he do? He prays repeatedly in the Psalms for the Lord to avenge him and to vindicate him. He trusts the Lord. He doesn't let his own anger dictate the way that he relates to Saul. The world looks to get even. But Christ did not. Christ told us to turn the other cheek. Christ told us to forgive our brothers 70 times 7. Christ went to the cross for an unfathomable list of sins, none of which were committed by Him, all of which were committed against Him. And He went to the cross to pay for them. So do you respond to wrongs against you like the world seeking to get even or like Jesus? Do you want to give back to someone what they gave to you? Do you want revenge? Do you want to get even? Do you want someone to hurt or feel bad because they need to understand that what they did to you is not okay and you want them to feel equally bad about it? That's not Christian. That's not Christ-like. That's our wicked flesh attempting to re-enlist us in the service of Satan. Do not give in. Trust that God will vindicate God will avenge. God will pay. Listen, do you believe this? Do you believe the gospel that every sin will be rightly judged by God? Every sin that's ever been committed against you, every lie that's ever been told against you, every bad thing that's ever been said about you, every betrayal that you've ever suffered, God will pay for it. And it's going to get paid for in one of two ways. Either, either, God is going to punish that person in hell forever for their sins. 
whether against you or against him. That will be enough vindication for you, I promise. You don't have to get even right now. Or, and here's the good news of the gospel, that sin has already been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. He already died for that lie against you. He already died for that betrayal against you. It's already been paid for. God has already judged that sin and He judged it more harshly than you can judge it. He said that sin against you is worthy of my son dying. And if that sin has been paid for on the cross, that means that person is your brother or sister in Christ. And God has already judged that sin. He's already paid for it. How dare we demand more? How dare we say, listen, no, I know God, I know you punished Jesus for that sin, but I want you to do more. I want that person to hurt. No, Jesus already hurt for them. He hurt for you. He paid for that sin, so we don't have to demand more payment. That's how we can overlook an offense. We can overlook an offense by believing the gospel. By believing that Jesus has already died and paid for that sin. Now, I admit, this is easier said than done. Because the oldest and most powerful idol is the idol of self. That idol demands that retribution be made when it is threatened. Because it is a weak and insecure God. We need to dethrone that weak God, that idol of self. Because no salvation can be found in it. Adam tried to worship at that altar. Satan tempted him. He said, Adam, you should be like God. He, he puffed up that idol of self. And Adam believed him. And Adam started to worship that idol of self. And he found only the curse. And so let's not make the same mistake. Let's not take ourselves too seriously. Let's remind ourselves that we are no gods so that when we are insulted, we can overlook that offense, not demand an eye for an eye. We understand this, I think, well enough when the roles are reversed. When we are the one that offends and someone gets angry whenever we say something or do something to them. And we immediately get defensive when someone gets offended at us and we say, listen, it was only a joke. You need to chill out, bro. What's your problem? The problem that they have is the same problem that we have. We find ourselves, we take ourselves far more seriously, far more important than we really are. And so we cannot abide by the smallest slide. What happens though if someone does something that's just impossible to overlook? What if it wasn't just a careless word or forgetting a promise that they made or making you the butt of their joke? What if someone sins against you in a way that threatens the unity of the church or threatens their own soul by some sort of engagement in sinful behavior. Well, if we cannot overlook the sin, then there is one final remedy that Jesus gives us for conflict in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seventy times in the same day and returns to you seven times saying, I or seven times in the same day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The last thing that we can see is a preventative and a cure for conflict 
is to confront and forgive. And we need to understand, as Christians, this is our responsibility. This is a command that Jesus gives us. Jesus commands us to confront the person that has sinned against us. Often people will say, well, they wronged me. They sinned against me. They should be the one to come and apologize. Or we'll say, I have no desire to speak to that person until they make it right. Well, does Jesus know what they did? I may not know, but Jesus knows what they did. And Jesus still tells you that it's our job to confront that person. I'm not telling you that. Jesus is. He says, you go to that person. Go to them. If your brother sins, rebuke him. The impetus, the onus is on us to act. Whether or not they come to us or not, we go to them and rebuke them. If you are wronged, you must go to that person. Now this doesn't mean that you shouldn't use wisdom. He gives us instructions elsewhere. If if this conversation does not go well to go with another person, we should use wisdom in how we confront. But if we feel wrong, then the next step is our responsibility. And if you are unwilling to do that, then you need to go back and say, okay, well, is this something I can overlook? Because the only two options is either to overlook it, and then we don't hold it against them. We say, okay, that's dealt with. It's paid for in Jesus. I don't have to carry that burden. I don't have to carry that weight. Do that. That's to your glory. But if you cannot overlook it, then you must confront There's no middle ground to occupy here where we just continue to exist with some tension, some difficulty, some conflict in the middle of us. And yet that's where conflict most often exists. We won't truly overlook it, but we also won't go and confront them and be reconciled to them. And so we remain in this purgatory of fractured relationships, unwilling to overlook, unwilling to confront. And conflict remains there like an elephant in the room. No wonder the nations are not yet reached with the gospel. No wonder our politicians lobby for infanticide. No wonder racial tensions continue to exist in our society. No wonder our neighbors are not transformed by our influence. You see, the churches we read about in Acts, they had no money, they had no power, they had no political influence, they had no freedom, no protections. And yet, within one generation, the gospel had advanced to the far corners of the earth. Why? It's no great mystery. Acts 2.46 tells us, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They were unified. They dealt with conflict. There wasn't conflict because if there was, they would overlook it. And if they couldn't overlook it, they would be reconciled to one another. They are in one accord. They're unified. And they didn't let petty offenses derail the gospel mission of the church. Yet our churches today are fractured. Something happens, a decision's made, we don't like it, we go to a different one. There's churches that exist today that only exist because they broke off from another church. Because they didn't like so-and-so or something going on there. You can drive around in like a 10-mile radius of this church and you read the history of our church and half the churches in this area started because people split off of Boone's Creek at one point because they got angry and went somewhere else. So this isn't something new. It's been happening for a long time. We need to make sure that this cycle 
is stopped so that we can be about the mission that God has given us to be about. We can't remain stymied in perpetual complacency and irrelevancy. We need to realize that time is short. Again, I've said this from the beginning. I don't know of any conflicts that exist. I'm not naive enough to think that there's not some. I don't know who's mad at who or who holds a grudge against someone for something that happened years ago. But if they exist, for heaven's sake, let's deal with them. Either resolve to overlook it, it's gone, you're not going to think about it anymore, or if you can't overlook it, go and confront that person. With the goal of being reconciled, with the goal of forgiveness. When we confront them, if they repent, we must forgive them. And we forgive them extravagantly. Seven times in a day. We forgive so that we refuse to let that offense continue to come between us. So that we can embrace that brother or sister without wariness or bitterness. We forgive with the same extravagance that God has forgiven us. Because if we know forgiveness and truly understand how great the depth of God's forgiveness toward us is, then we shouldn't even blink when given the opportunity to forgive a brother or sister in Christ. Forgiven people forgive people. Forgiveness is what has brought us into this family and forgiveness is what keeps us together as a family. So then let us freely seek to give others what God has given us. Forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. If you need to experience that forgiveness today or if you need to extend that forgiveness to someone else and you don't know how, then I would ask that in just a moment you come forward and we'll talk. We'll talk about how you can know the forgiveness that comes from the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And in hope, we can experience together that transformation that comes by His grace alone. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the hope of forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray now that as we conclude this service and as we prepare to continue in worship through observing communion, that You would make us more united than ever. Lord, make this church a bastion of unity of hope, of truth. And Lord, may we honor You in all that we say and all that we do. Lord, may we embrace the forgiveness that You've offered to us and then let us extend that same forgiveness to others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.